As we look at the book of James chapter 4, um, we're going to look at this text tonight, and he's writing to Christians who are believers who aren't acting like believers. Uh, one of the things I think that hurts the church the most is uh, hypocrisy, okay? And uh, when, when the world looks at us, do they see us different than the world? Um, and these Christians that he's wrote to, remember, these are the people that were in Jerusalem and they got dispersed and they were under persecution and yet they weren't acting like they should be. And we're going to look at this strong warning that James gives us against being worldly. Uh, it's, it's, it's so hard in the church today to keep the world out of it. Remember, if we use worldly things to bring the world in, then we have to continue to do worldly things to keep them. But if we use the word of God to bring the world in, the word of God will keep them. And we have to be careful of using worldly things. And um, when James writes this chapter, it's almost like a Howard Stern doing a shock thing, saying something that will shock the church, okay? And as we studied this book here, um, we saw in chapter one, this book is about revealing genuine faith. Tonight, the sermon's titled, Faith That Works. Not that you have to work to have faith, but it's genuine faith that works. Then you look at chapter one, James shows us what genuine faith looks like under trials. In chapter two, he showed us what genuine faith looks like in the church, that we don't favor rich people over poor people, or we don't favor people who dress right over people who don't have clothes. We accept them the same. And, and I know many of us sitting here tonight, in your mind when people walk in dressed a certain way on Sunday, some of us are thinking, I can't believe that's what they wore to church. Okay, Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus doesn't think that way at all. Jesus always looks on the heart. He's not looking at the outward appearance. In chapter 3, um, we see that James was talking about genuine faith that controls its tongue. Now, of all the things I struggle with sin with, my tongue is the only thing that everywhere I go, I bring it. I mean, if I'm going to get drunk, I have to go and buy some beer somewhere or whatever. If I'm going to have an affair, I have to go find a, someone to have an affair with. But my tongue is with me 24-7. And I think it can be the worst thing that it sins with. And James was talking about people who wanted to preach God's word, yet they didn't control their tongue. And then tonight we're going to look at a real faith in a culture full of pride. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So if you look at me with verses 1 through 5, right off the bat, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not know, you do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns 
jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, there's some really meat in that scripture there. But the first thing you want to see in my first point tonight is faith that works surrenders its desires to God. We're going to look here at uh, our problem with our desires. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I have some evil desires. And I have to fight it on a regular day. I was just telling Andy before we started, the problem of a living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar. And my flesh wants to crawl off the altar all the time. James asked, what causes strife? We need to take a good look at what's below the surface. It's not the tip of the iceberg that sunk the Titanic. It's what was below the surface. And most of our problems in our relationships with our wives or our children or people that we work with or in our churches, they come because of what's below the surface, our wrong desires. There's a war that is going on inside of us, and we need to find out what the root is. And the desire inside of us that causes us to sacrifice others to get what we want. We have wrong desires, we covet, and we don't pray correctly. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And the Apostle Paul um, explains it all to us here in Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. He'll explain very well what's going on inside of us. In verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Uh, we're no longer under the law, but we're free because Jesus put his spirit in us. And it's the spirit of God that keeps us from, from sinning, okay? But through love, serve one another. Our whole goal as a Christian is to serve others. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor, how? As yourself. That's the royal law. James is going to talk about the royal law later on in this chapter. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you do not consume by one another. I, I've been involved in churches. Uh, I have to be careful myself of my tongue. Like I told you, everywhere I go, that stupid tongue goes with me. Okay, I've given my opinion, or I didn't like the service today, or uh, the music wasn't right, or we're just starting to bite and devour one another over stupid things that don't matter. And that's what Paul's talking about here. If we consume and devour one another, who's going to be left? And I've seen churches who were at one time vibrant, making a difference with the gospel in their, in their neighborhoods, who have maybe four or five people left in their church because they constantly bite and devour each other. Now, Paul goes on to say, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit in church, sometimes we think it's this mystical uh, smoke that comes down or, or somebody will lay hands on you and the Spirit of God will grab you and it'll change everything. But the Holy Spirit is practical. When you got saved, everybody in this room that's saved, when you got saved, God deposited his Spirit within you. Now, I know the night that he deposited in me, Everything changed from that day after. Doesn't mean I got perfect, but the things I used to love to do that I know wasn't pleasing to God, even when I did them again, I was miserable. 
there was a war inside of me. Prior to receiving the Lord Jesus as my Savior, I had no battles with it. I, I was... I just went right along with the world, like going down the river in a canoe this way. But God turned the canoe around, and now I had to go upstream. I had to fight the worldly system. And he says, but if you walk in the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul wrote that somewhere else in, in Romans 7 when he said, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now he describes the difference between the flesh and the spirits. He said, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, any, any sex outside of marriage, is sexual immorality. Impurity, the things we look at, things we talk about, what comes out of our mouth, the stuff we touch. Sensuality, idolatry. Now, I know some of you are sitting here today, well, we're not like the, the pagans were, where they had idols. We all have idols. Some of us wax our idols. Some of them have other things that they're idols. It might be football. It might be a home. It might be your bank account. It might be your job. But we have idols in our life. He says idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revilers, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all things like these, I warn you. Paul's given us a firm warning as I warned you before, now listen to what he says here. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's enemy against God. When we live in the flesh, you're living as an enemy towards God. Now he gives us what it looks like to walk in the spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love. Love is the main fruit. Again, you shall love your Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then these are the fruits that come from love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, what have they done? They've crucified the flesh with the passions and their desires. Years ago, I, when I was a pastor, there was a woman in my church who was struggling with same-sex relationships. And she wanted to talk to me. And um, I fell on my knees before the Lord the day she was coming into the office. I said, Lord, I, I don't know what to tell her. And unless you give me the wisdom and I can do it in love, I, I, I just pray for your help. And so she came in and she sat at my cross from my desk and she began to tell me her life as a child, how her dad had molested her and her brother and his friends had raped her and how her dad constantly called her names for playing softball and just abused her physically and mentally and emotionally. And I remember sitting there, sitting across from her just in tears and I said to her, I understand why you're not attracted to men. I, I get it. I, I totally get it. And she says, well, Rick, I think I was born this way. And I said to her, um, really? I says, uh, let me ask you a question. What do you think of Hugh Hefner? And she looked at me and she goes, I think he's a pig. 
I said, well, not me. I says, um, I really like to live his lifestyle. And I know she was about ready to, to pass out, thinking here's a pastor telling me he wants to be a playboy, you know. I says, I have the desires to do what he does. I said, but Jesus said to me, if I want to follow him, I have to pick up my cross and deny myself and follow Jesus. I told her, I said, I decided that Jesus was far better than living a life of sexual immorality. I says, and I decided to be a one-man woman and to follow Christ. And I said to her, I'm not telling you that your desires for the same sex is going to go away today. But you got a decision to make. Do you want to follow Jesus or do you want to follow your flesh? She looked at me with tears in her eyes and she says, no one's ever answered me like this before. She says, I got a lot of soul searching to do. Sorry to say she never came back to the church. Okay. And it's the same with us guys. He says here, the apostle Paul says, and those who belong to Jesus has crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The only way to kill the flesh is to starve it. You have to starve it. And the flesh isn't going to totally die until we're out of here. Unless it's happened to somebody, then I'll sit down today and you can start preaching today. Because it hasn't happened to me yet. I have to fight the flesh every day. But we have to constantly crucify our flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us all keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now go back to James with me. James asked the cause of strife. Where does it come from? It comes from our evil desires that war within us. We need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Faith that works surrenders its desires to God. The second point is found in verses 6 through 10. James says this. I love this very first part of this verse. But he... This is what makes all the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. God. But he, what does he do? Gives more grace. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. I'm so thankful for God's grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this is an important part of this text. Look what James tells us to do. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, that last part doesn't sound like a great invitation to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, quit laughing, quit being happy, start mourning. But that's the key to receiving God's grace. Faith that works embraces God's grace. He gives more grace. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In Proverbs chapter 16, uh, starting with verse 17, it says there are six things that God hates Seven are an abomination unto the Lord. The very first thing that God hates is a proud look. He hates pride. And pride is our whole problem. 
um, when we're coming to really salvation with Christ. Pride is our struggle with anything. When we fight with our wives or when we fight with somebody or, or struggle in the church, it's always pride that stops us from restoring it. Because, see, I always want to be right. You know, they're wrong. I'm right. That's pride. You can see it when God came to Cain before he killed Abel. Uh, the, God came to him and said, hey, Cain, uh, sin is crouching at the door. You need to master it. Now, I remember reading that thinking, Lord, that's not fair. I mean, why did you do that to Cain? If God told me to master sin, I, would, I can't master it. Unless the Holy Spirit does it in my life, there's no way I can. He also did the same thing to the rich young ruler. He said to the rich young ruler, you know, you lack one thing. The rich young ruler says, I've kept all the law since I was a little guy. And the Bible says that Jesus loved him. Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. Now, how many of us men in this room tonight that if the Lord told you to sell all that you had, everything that you had, and come and follow him, could you really surrender everything you have to God? And I look at that and I'm thinking, Lord, that's not fair to the rich young ruler. But what Jesus was trying to get Cain and the rich young ruler to do is to admit, I can't do that. If Cain would have said to God, I can't master sin, I think God would have, would have, would have helped him. If the rich young ruler said, Jesus, I can't give that money away, but if you help me, I think Jesus would have wrapped his arm around him and helped him. And that's our problem. When we understand grace, grace is all about humbling yourself. Jacob, one of the biggest deceivers in the Old Testament, you know, he manipulated his way all the way through life. Um, he uh, lied about, about his brother. He, he took all that time to put hair all over his body and make him smell bad so he could get the blessing from Isaac. And then when he met his father-in-law, he met a, a challenge with his father-in-law because his father-in-law could deceive him as well. But Jacob was always conning everybody until the one night at that river by himself after he sent his family across the river and set them up in two different places. And I, this, is, this is my opinion. This might not be theologically correct, but I think Jacob was going to run that night. I think he was going to leave his family. He was going to run because he was scared of facing Esau because Esau promised him, I'm going to kill you if I get you. But God had another plan. And I believe this was an a, a incarnation of Christ in the Old Testament. I believe it was Jesus that he wrestled with that night. And he wrestled with them all night. Now, God was toying with him. The Bible says that Jacob would let, let the angel of the Lord go. But I think Jesus could have just flicked him and it would have been over. And Jacob said, well, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And what did he do? He dislocated his hip. Now, a lot of us look at that. It's not a blessing. But it was a blessing in Jacob's life. And he changed his name from Jacob, you know, a heel catcher, to Israel. And the name Israel means governed by God. Jacob was his own man. Everything he did, he turned to gold. He made money. He got rich. He was just everything he did. And Jacob thought he did it on his own. But that night at that river, God showed Jacob that it's him that rules his life. And from that day forward, Jacob walked differently. He walked humbly. He submitted his life to God. Now, if you look at the rest of this portion of scripture, James gives us some steps towards humility. The first step is in verse seven. He said, submit yourself to who? God. What does it mean to submit? Exactly what Jacob did that night. He gave in. 
He tells us to resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? Well, there's some things you just have to do. You can't go back to the places you used to go. When I got saved, my old friends, I knew I had to get away from them or I couldn't have overcome the drugs and the alcohol. So I had to I had to go. I had to get out of it. I was too weak to go back to doing that stuff. If we resist the devil, look what he will do. He will flee. Draw near to God. Like we're talking about humbling yourself. How do you draw near to God? You get in his word. You pray. You get around godly people. You go to church. You send under Bible teaching. Draw near to God. And what will God do? Draw near to you. Verse 8 is our response to all this. How are you to respond? He tells you, first of all, cleanse your hands. The things that you were doing with your hands that were filthy, that you were working with and stuff, he tells you to cleanse them. The next one is the one I struggle with. He says, purify your hearts. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. And I remember always reading that and saying, Lord, I know my hearts. The Bible says my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? God knows it. And he wants us to purify hearts. Well, I can't purify my heart. Only God can purify my heart. But what that means is to get rid of your split devotion between God and and the world. See, a lot of us, we look at my devotion to God like a piece, a big apple pie, right? And my wife, when she cuts apple pie, she cuts them into eight pieces. And she's a perfectionist. She has to make sure every piece is exactly the same. So it's fair to who gets the piece. And a lot of us, we look at that pie that's been cut. And on Sunday morning is, is God. You know, I got my piece for God. On, uh, then on this, here's my job. And then here's when I hang out with my friends. And this is what I do on Friday night. And uh, this is uh, my, my bank account. And we have all these different things. Newt Larson, um, he was telling us at a pastor's uh, breakfast one time, Bill Clinton, when he was president, he used to have prayer meetings at the, the White House. And Larson got invited to one. And he told us that it was unbelievable. He knew the scriptures. He, uh, he had his Bible. He could... He could read it. He says, and he would walk around. He says, and Bill Clinton could work a room better than anybody. And I remember asking Newt, I said, but how could he say he's a Christian and be so for abortion and all the other things? He goes, because Bill Clinton compartmentalized Jesus Christ. See, God wants the whole pie. He doesn't want a portion of the pie. He wants our whole heart, you guys. And he wants us to give strict devotion to him. Everything that we do, whether we eat, whether we work, whether we play, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do it for the glory of God. And that's what we don't want. And that's what a pure heart is. Now, I have a hard time Jesus wanting my whole heart because there's parts of my heart I don't want anybody to know. But God wants that. He wants you to bring your whole heart to him. You might be sitting here saying, Rick, there's some sinful things in my heart. God knows they're there anyways. Jesus has covered that. He wants you to bring it to him. And real freedom comes when you bring it all out in the open. Again, it was what was below the surface that sunk the Titanic, not that was above it. And it's when we bring our whole heart before God that he will begin to do good works in our life. Now, the next couple of verses that we just talked about, wretched, mourn, weep, gloom. When someone gives their testimony of how they got saved, 
and I don't ever mean to be criticized of this, I'm looking for one thing coming out of their mouth. Just one thing. Where was it in your life that you came to the place that you knew there was no way you were going to be able to stand before God because you were a wretched sinner? Where did you see that I'm saying, Romans says, all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. What's the key word? All. He said, there is none that doeth good, not one. Key word? None. All right? It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Key word? All. And see, for true salvation, for genuine faith to take place in our life, we have to come to a place that we see our depravity. Me being raised a Catholic, I just knew I could earn my way in. No, I can't. And I had to come to a place in my life where I saw Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, those that are bankrupt, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, what? I'm spiritually dead. I can't get there. Okay, also he said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst for what? A righteousness that they can't obtain. I can't obtain righteousness. It's only in Christ and Christ alone. You have to humble yourself. This is true conviction. Faith that works embraces God's grace. Now, the next portion of Scripture, when we've, when we've experienced God's grace, um, hang on a when we've experienced God's grace, then we can show grace to others. Verses 11 and 12 is faith that works shows grace to others. Look at this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Faith that works shows grace to others. Remember the story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Matthew where this guy owed a big, huge debt that he couldn't pay to one of his masters? And uh, the master was going to throw him into jail. And he fell down and begged him. And he said, hey, give me a chance. I'll be able to pay you back. And I can't remember the numbers, but there was no way that that servant could ever pay that his master back. It was an astronomical amount. I think the servant only made like 50 cents a day and he owed a couple million dollars and there was no way. But because the goodness of the master, he forgave that servant. But that very same servant left there that day and went out and found a servant that owed him, I think it was like $2. And he began to put his hands around his neck and choke him and say, pay me what you owe me. When his master found out what he did, he said, I forgave you of a debt you couldn't pay, yet you couldn't forgive your brother for a debt that he could pay you back. And he threw him into prison to pay back his debt, which would have took him the rest of his life. And don't we do that to others? We've been forgiven of so much that we forget that what we've been forgiven. I heard Mike Tyson have an interview with Tucker um, Carlson a couple of weeks ago. And if, um, most of you probably know who Mike Tyson is. 
uh, one of the greatest boxers. I think he probably was the hardest hitter of all time. Even heard that Muhammad Ali said that Tyson was better than him. And Ali never said anybody was better than him. Said he was the greatest. But Tucker Carlson asked him, you know that you're a, um, a lightning rod, right? And Mike Tyson said, yeah, I know I am. And he goes, um, how do you handle when people talk bad about you? He said, well, when I think I'm somebody, it bothers me. But when I remember I'm nobody, it rolls off my back. And I remember thinking, man, Mike, that's, that's wisdom. Okay? And that's our problem. The reason we can't forgive other people is because we think we're somebody. The truth is, we're nobody. A few years from now, 10 years from now, if the Lord should wait, I'll probably be gone, uh, hopefully living in heaven. I mean, I know I'm going to be living in heaven, not hopefully. I have no doubt. But my pictures will come off the mantle. They'll end up in a big box somewhere under one of my kids' basement. Someday a great-grandkid will say, hey, who's that? And they'll go, I, I don't know. I don't know who that is. You know, look on the back. Well, it says it's Rick Colella, you know, or something like that. That's who we are. We're nothing. We're a circle without the rim. Our problem with our pride and the reason we don't show grace to other is we think we're something. The solution to strife is getting right with others. Love, Butch has a saying to all the staff. He reminds us of this every year. Love has a cover Love covers a multitude of sins, but if you can't let it go, you have to go and confront that person. And maybe here's tonight, there's somebody in your life that you haven't forgiven, that you're struggling with, and you remember what they said, or they hurt you, somebody at work. Well, the Bible tells us that love can cover a multitude of sins. You can let it go under that river, but if you can't do it, then it's time for you to go to them and get right with them because you have to realize that God has forgiven you of a debt you can't pay. You have to forgive others. Love covers a multitude of sins. We have to humble ourselves to get right with God. Also includes getting right with others. When we are right with others, it shows them that God has really done a big change in our life. When we judge others, we put ourselves above them and saying that we're above the law. And we are to love others and let God judge them. We're not to judge them and then let God love them. God's the final judge. And the truth is, guys, nobody knows the shoes I've walked in. Nobody knows my pain. No one knows your pain. No one knows where you've really been. And a lot of times in the process of sanctification, and sanctification is a crockpot. It is not a microwave. It's a crock pot. And God takes us. And there might be a brother who just recently got saved, but he's still struggling with addiction and alcohol or whatever, whatever battle is pornography or something. And he's right here in sanctification. And then there might be a brother right here in sanctification, looks at him and goes, oh, he's not saved. He's not saved. But if I could drag this brother back to where he was at this time, he would remember how patient God was with him. And see, our job, according to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said that if a brother sins 70 times against you, you're to forgive him. And that means that every time the wanderer comes back, we're supposed to encourage you. Come on. Come on, I've been where you're at. But so many times, as we're this down on, on, on sanctification, we start getting proud and we start judging other people. It's wrong. 
Verse 11 says, there is only one lawgiver. And I don't think it has mine or your name on it. It's God and it's his place only. Faith that really works shows grace to others. Finally, in verses 13 through 17, faith that works trust in God's. He says, come now you who say today and tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He asks this question, what is your life? For you are a mist. The King James Version says a vapor. It's like open up a pop can or a pop, lid off the pop. That's what your life is. That appears for a little time and it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. There's that word pride. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Who better to explain this than the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Starting in um, verse 19. Jesus said this. Do not lay up treasures for on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. Now this is a key part to this verse. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It don't take long to find out where someone's treasure is. You can find out where they spend their time and their money. You'll know what they love. Now he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. It means that if you're pursuing or seeking what God wants, you're going to be healthy. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, he asks this question, how great is that darkness? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Impossible. We, you can't have two. For either you will hate one and love the other, or he will devote to one and despise the other. And then he says this. You can't serve money and God. In the King James Version, it uses the word mammon, and mammon was an old god that the, the pagans used that helped them get money. They worshipped him for wealth. And that's what Jesus is saying. There is no other god but our god. He goes on to say, when you realize that God is all you really want, he says, therefore, key word, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Now look what Jesus tells us not to be anxious about. What to eat. I'm sure all of us was wondering what was for dinner tonight as we were coming here, right? Maybe honestly, weren't you anxious? I wonder what they got cooking for tonight, okay? Or what you will drink. Or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns. Yet what? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Sometimes you need to stop, guys and all your businesses, and sit down and watch the birds to remind yourself, wow, they, they, don't, they don't store in the barns, and every day they're up chirping, waking me up, okay? Are you not more valuable than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Our days are numbered. And all the things you're worried about isn't going to add another day. Maybe worry might take a day from it, but it's not going to add a day. God has numbered your days. And why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today and is alive tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, your heavenly Father, and it isn't great that we can call God our Father. I'm so honored to call him Father, that I could be called one of his sons, not because of how good I am, but because of what Christ has done. And if he's my Father, he knows all that I need. Guys, I've been married for 45 years. And my wife and I raised five kids. And there was times that I didn't know how we were going to pay the bills the next day. But I want you to know that God has never failed me. He's never failed me. And sometimes to make our faith grow, we got to look back. His faithfulness in our past. We need to build Ebenezer's to remind ourselves of what God has done. He says, your heavenly father, he knows what you need. Now the key word here is but. What are we supposed to do? Seek first the kingdom of God. Are you doing that today? Are you putting the kingdom of God first in your life? And his righteousness. Notice it's, it's his righteousness. It's not yours. It's his. Then he tells you this. All these things will be added unto you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. To tomorrow is anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is its own trouble. Now, back in James, James, James was Jesus' half-brother. Where do you think James got this portion of Scripture from? I'm sure Jesus probably talked to him as they were laying in bed at night and talking about it. He says this, um, we should say, instead, we ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live to do this. We need to guard ourselves against independency from God. We need to remember that it's God that has supplied everything for us. Everything you got has come from God. Uh, I was driving down the road one time and I was looking at all these houses and all the different people that lived in the houses and I was thinking, man, Lord, you've supplied water and food and clothing and housing for all these people. Just drive through allotments, pick an allotment and drive through them and see how many things, all the houses, all the big houses and beautiful homes and cars and, and the gas to, to, to supply those cars. God has supplied all that. It's a miracle. We miss those miracles around us. Just in this room, every one of you's clothes, thank the Lord for that. I'm glad everybody came clothed tonight. But every one of us are clothed. We probably have so much clothes in our closet, we didn't know what to wear. We have different pairs of shoes. Yet God takes care. Just around this room, it's a miracle. Every one of you are fed. Every one of you had gas for your car. It's God that provides. And our problem is James rebukes this kind of heart that makes plans apart from the awareness of God. Do you have the awareness of God in every day of your life? In everything you're doing? Do you, or do you underestimate your own limit, limitations? I know my limitation. And there's not much. It's totally God. 
And do we take God out of our plans? My other question to you is, is God in your plans? Everything you're doing, is it for his glory? Verse 14, James reminds us that our life is fragile. Um, two weeks ago, one of my closest friends, Chaz was working with us on Friday. We were joking around. We always talked about music, and uh, he hated the group. Um, um, uh, they did the song More Than a Feeling. Boston, he hated them. We were teasing him about it, okay? And we were talking about uh, his guitars and stuff. Saturday morning, Chaz was gone. He died of a heart attack. Now, I have no doubt where Chaz Keith is at. Chaz is leading the choir up in heaven, and he's standing before Jesus. And it reminded me that he was with me on Friday, and he was gone Saturday morning. Every one of us in this room, our life is fragile. We all think we're going to live forever. I remember when I was 18, I thought I'd never be 68. Bam, I'm 68. He flies. He reminds us that our life is fragile and the fact that we live and move only in the permission of God. He's numbered our days. There's nothing but pure arrogance if we think we move apart from God. And in verse 15 and 16, he says, instead we ought to live seeking the Lord's will. Any other boasting is evil. And verse 17, I want to read that again to you. He ends with this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him, it is sin. Tonight, going through chapter four, we've seen everything that's right to do. And you can't leave here tonight and say, I didn't know, and neither can I. James ends with a challenge to live according to what we know. Faith that works surrenders all its desires to God. Faith that works embraces God's grace. Faith that works shows grace to others. And faith that works trusts in God. Listen, you guys, this whole book about James is about genuine faith. And you can look around our world. It is going to hell in a handbasket, literally. But what they're looking for is the real deal. They're looking for that. And God has placed his spirit in every one of us men in this room tonight. And the world is looking for someone to show them the real Jesus. My question to all of us tonight, are we living a life that is surrendered, embraced God's grace, showing grace to others, and is trusting in God? Or are we trusting in ourselves? Let's pray. I don't know where you're at tonight. I know where I'm at. This t- I've been studying the scripture for about four weeks and it just keeps hammering me. I know I need a lot of growing in this area. If you're here tonight, you're struggling as we pray tonight, just surrender to him and embrace the grace that he's got to offer. Father, we thank you for James. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide deep into our soul and spirit. It can separate and make us take a good look like James made us look at this mirror of ourselves tonight. Lord, I want to surrender all my desires to you. I thank you for your great grace. I want to show grace to the world that needs to see the real Jesus. And Lord, help me to trust you with 
all my heart, even when I don't understand what you're doing, I know that you're working out your will and your purpose in my life. I pray for every brother in this room as they leave here tonight, they would look for opportunities to share their faith in a real and genuine way, unjudgmental to others, no matter who you bring in their life, that they may be able to show the love and grace of Jesus Christ to them. Lord, I pray for Maranatha Bible Church that we as men would begin to live our lives according to your word and lead our wives and our children the same way. Give you all the glory, Lord, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.